All right, guys. Here's my question as we get started on the Ten Commandments. Isn't this legalistic for us to be studying the Ten Commandments? I mean, some of, some of you have even been honest with me. They're like, yeah, I saw that it was on the Ten Commandments and I almost didn't sign up. You know, maybe because it feels detached or ancient, but isn't this another reason not to do it? It's legalistic. We're studying rules. Why would we do that? What do you guys think about when I say legalism or being legalistic? Actually, I would like to hear from you guys. What, do you, what are examples of legalism? No low blows here. Just how about safe answers on what, what you think of? Pharisee. Yes. Sadducees. Okay, I was thinking just like, yes, I was thinking not going to dances. Don't play cards. I wrote that down. Long skirts. Oh, only Christian music. Yeah. Oh, oh, the two-piece thing. That was such a youth group thing. Yeah. I mean, two-piece swimsuit. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So we all have thoughts that come to our mind when we think of legalism. I grew up in the Bible Belt, but I actually feel like I didn't grow up in a legalistic home, but I I was swimming in those waters. A lot of friends couldn't trick or treat. How about that as an example, right? We could trick or treat. Um, My parents probably got judged for it, but we had to dress in brightly colored, happy costumes rather than like killers or, you know, like dark (laughs) stuff. You know, like, yeah, you know, like weapons and I don't know. (laughs) We were little girls, so maybe it wasn't that big a deal. But, but those are some of the thoughts that, that come to my mind when I think about legalism. But this week, when I was studying the, the first five commandments with you guys, I found this definition, and it kind of made this whole text come alive. Legalism is detaching the law of God from the God who gave the law. That's what we're going to kind of use as our starting point this morning. Legalism is detaching the law of God from the God who gave the law. And you know what's so cool, guys? Moses, the author, the narrator, he actually seems to address this. Because how did he start this week in chapter 20. He starts it by saying, before the first commandment, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Then you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image of me. And so we see him making it really clear. Don't detach These 10 words, these 10 commandments from me. He tethers the law to their story. He tethers it to himself. And who is he? In verse one, he is saying, I am your redeemer. I am your deliverer. Recall that I brought you out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt. So guys, if our hope is for these 10 words to be written not just on our paper for a quiz, but on our hearts. 
then we too have to couch these words in the story of deliverance. And I would actually even say in our own stories of redemption. And so I did that this week and I want to share that with you. I want to put this into practice. I am going to recall briefly to you guys who the Lord my God is and how he brought me out of the land of slavery. So I took the time to remember when I was a young child, and although it was a happy childhood and a a healthy home, I actually remember the fear and the pressure that I felt even as a young kid. I feared hell every single day. I lived in fear of dying and going to hell. I feared punishment, the fear of failing and the fear of messing up. So my story starts with actually religion being a very cruel taskmaster to me. Fear was my tyrant. Perfection was my heavy yoke. Fear, religion, perfection. But the Lord my God brought me out of this land of slavery. I was seven years old. I could take you to the church in North Texas right now and probably take you to the exact place the chair was on that Sunday morning service. When for the first time, guys, I felt the conviction of sin rather than the condemnation of sin. And with that conviction of sin that can only come from the Spirit, I heard the invitation to believe in Jesus for my salvation and to confess that the Lord is God. And in that moment, even as a seven-year-old, I believe that I was brought out of my land of slavery, slavery to sin and death. But I also want to recall to you another moment. About eight years later, so I am a young teenager. We're living in Iowa. And what had happened is that I had started to slip back into the yoke of slavery. And what it was was there was just a season of life where I essentially was swerving back and forth from being anti-law. So believing that, well, since I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. And so I'd go anti-law and, and dabble in the, the riches of the world. And then I would feel guilty or I'd feel the consequence of it. And so what would I do? I'd go to the other ditch and that's legalism. And back and forth I went during my junior high years between rebellion and living as if there is no law of God and then legalism, detaching that law from the God who saved me and just trying to keep rules. What that did for me it was it left me anxious and exhausted as I tried to stay on, well, really it was just staying out of these ditches. I remember this night in eighth grade when the Lord my God delivered me from that. I remember again feeling the conviction of sin, feeling how that invitation sounded and tasted like life. And I heard the gospel anew that night. As I walked home from youth group to our our parsonage, I remember it like it was yesterday, putting the Lord my God first in my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and finding the way to life. This week, as I recalled those two pretty pivotal moments in my life, I felt readied to receive the first five commandments in context, to receive them in the best way possible, guys. And if you think about it, and I found this from Kevin DeYoung, guys, this is beautiful. These 
Ten Commandments, the first five, they were not given to slaves in Egypt as a way to liberate themselves. They were given to free children on how to remain free. The 10 words were given to free children on how to remain free. It was true in the original story. It was true to the original audience, and it's true for us. As we receive them this week, as we look at them now, as we look at them next week, enjoy that truth that you are a free child of God if you have been freed from the yoke of slavery And this shows us how to stay free. And this freedom comes from obeying these words. So we saw this week that actually these verses are not originally called the Ten Commandments, but they were called the Ten Words. For the sake of us being familiar with it, we're just going to stick with commandments for now. But let's just talk a little bit about the context before we go any further. Remember when we kind of combed through the pages and we saw the Ten Commandments, but then the rules weren't over, right? We saw pages and pages of different laws, and those had consequences and details. Here's what we need to know for now. The Ten Commandments are timeless. They still apply to us, as we saw in our homework this week. But in the pages that follow, those are often called the judgments. Those are more specifically written to those people in those times. So when we read about a penalty or consequence of not helping our neighbor's ox or whatever, those don't apply to us. It doesn't mean the heart of it doesn't apply to us, but we don't need those to be in our country's laws right now. So think of the Ten Commandments as more broad strokes, giving us the heart of God, showing us how to live in his kingdom. And then in the judgments, the details that follow, think of that as a fine tooth, fine paintbrush, coloring in. What it was showing them as it went through every different area of their life, it was showing them that the law of God needs to inform every part of their life. That's what it would mean to be God's children, living in God's kingdom. Okay, so with that in mind, guys, let's talk about these first five this morning. So the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. One of the repeated questions in our homework was, how could we say this in a different way? Would someone say what you said for like the positive version of this? I don't know what question it was in the book. Six, yeah, what'd you put? Follow only me as your one true God. How did she say that question? Put it in the positive? Okay. As a do command, yeah, yeah. I like that. One more person, read yours. Yes. Love the Lord your God. Yeah, that's beautiful. I just wrote serve the Lord alone. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's put this commandment in context, guys. You guys know this. Think of this original audience who's going to receive this first command. What is their background? They're coming from polytheistic Egypt. Lots and lots of gods. And where are they headed? polytheistic Canaan. They're sandwiched in by this, guys. And they just experienced the plagues. 
They saw 10 plagues of death. And we saw that this is so that the Egyptians would know that the Lord is God. But then we saw that second verse that was pretty heavy. I will execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. Why did God need to reinforce this? He, who's going to forget the plagues? There's no way that these children are going to forget these plagues. How terrifying, how awesome were they? As they saw this happen, that would surely be etched in their mind. And yet here, this is what God starts with. Serve the Lord only. You shall have no other gods before me. Guys, he's repeating it because it's imperative. It is so critical that they get that pantheon of gods out of their mind, out of their DNA, out of their way of living. They are God's children. They will serve him only. They saw a battle of the gods happen in the plagues. They saw Moses take on Pharaoh, a nod to the seed of the woman taking on the seed of the serpent, a nod to God taking on Pharaoh and winning, drowning him in the sea. But they had to know, they had to, they had to, they had to know that there is only one God. He is not one of many. He's not just a little bit better than the runner-up God. He is the only true God. So that's our context. So then we ask ourselves, well, what about us? Of course we would have no other gods before him. None of us are going to blatantly bow down to the Nile River or to the sun god or to frogs. None of us would bow to the Egyptian gods. But can we say that we will truly serve the Lord alone? Let's just keep washing this down until it's in really natural language for us, guys. Don't we often love other things more than God? Is this first commandment just not about idolatry? And how often do we love other things more than him? I love comfort more than God a lot of times. I bow to comfort. I wish that all I was confessing to you guys right now is that I like sweatpants. It's more than just sweatpants. I bow to comfort in so many different ways. It's, it's physical comfort, sure. It's financial comfort. It's relational comfort where I want peace with everyone, and it's spiritual comfort. Many faces of this idol in my life. And guys, when I allow this false God named comfort to step in front of the one true God, then I am breaking this first commandment. Or just in my heart even, when I look to comfort to give me hope or joy, then I am breaking this commandment. And I thought about, well, why? Why is comfort so, why would I prefer to bow to that false God than the one true God? And I think it's because we know that what we find in the Bible and what we hear from the pulpit so often is the truth that the one true God doesn't promise comfort right now. That's not a guarantee for the Christian. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, you will have hardship. He says, when you are persecuted, 
Throughout the whole story of the Bible, there is the theme of suffering. And most days, I don't like that. And so if I am confronted with anything that, that threatens my comfort, I'm going to pivot. And it's going to be subtle, but I'm going to pivot away from the one true God, and I'm going to instead bow toward a prosperity Jesus. I'm going to do it in a subtle enough way that it doesn't draw too much attention where I feel like I can get away with it. But I will do whatever I can to remain comfortable. So I actually want to just kind of beat a dead horse and use that um, idol for each of these five commandments. And what I want to now add to kind of us understanding the context is we're not just going to tether each of these commandments to verse 1. But we're also going to see how obeying the first commandment will empower us and enable us to obey the the next nine for this morning, just the next four. Okay, so so understanding this and getting this as clear as day is going to matter as we move to number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not make for yourself any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth below. Okay, let's talk about this. So in context, you know what's so interesting, guys? The young people of Israel would have looked so strange to their neighbors by not having an idol for their God, for not having an image of their God. So when the Canaanite neighbors or the people in the wilderness would look in on their life and see that they had no statue, no image of their God, it would have been so weird. They would have been uh, made fun of, to boil it down to our language. They would have been ridiculed for this. You're serving an invisible God? How how does that make any sense? And in a couple weeks, we're actually going to see this in the tabernacle. In the innermost room called the Holy of Holies was the throne of God. There was uh, the mercy seat, and on either side was a cherubim looking down. But on top of that mercy seat, the throne of God, there was no statue. There was nothing there. But we are going to read that this is where God dwelt. That was the king's throne. But to a watching world, that was crazy. That made no sense. So really what this instruction is about, guys, about not making a carved image, it's teaching the children of Israel to not worship in an improper way. It was informing their worship. They've been told you were called out of Egypt to worship. Then they were taught this is how you're going to worship, as my possession, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation. And this is going to add on to their understanding that this is how you worship. You will not make a statue, an image, and then worship it. No, you are going to worship God who is spirit, the invisible God. And this is where it makes a difference in our life, guys. Making a version of God in today's age, I think, is more about making a version of God in our mind or in our speech that is more likable, tameable, a God who is more controllable. One of the sources I read this week says this, God will not be captured. God will not be contained. He will not be assigned or managed by anyone or anything for any reason. This is our God. 
That's one reason. Number two, guys, this is what happens. Why are we told to not carve an image of God, to not make any likeness of God? Because the job of making image bearers has been taken. God monopolizes that role. Do you ever think about that? That is God's job to make images who bear his likeness. And it's us. He has already done that. He has already created the human race to resemble him, to look like him, to reflect him. But sin kind of messed that up. It didn't so mess up the plan of image bearing that God had to throw it out. But I always describe it like this. Think of a handheld mirror. When sin came in the garden, instead of it being able to, you know, Adam or Eve holding this mirror and it perfectly showing the world God, it's like someone punched it. And all of the glass is still in place, but it's all broken and splintered. And so when you look in it, it's distorted. It actually, oh, I can kind of see God in those humans. I can kind of see what he's like, but I'm a little confused. I'm a little, it feels a little chaotic, a little messy. And in fact, I can kind of get led astray at times because God's image bearers have bowed to sin and to the serpent. And so that image is fractured. But luckily, that's not where this point ended. And we went there in our homework, guys. Not only is God's image seen in his children, but where was it to be seen with perfection? In the person of Christ. So we turned over to Colossians 1, and we read that Jesus came, and he didn't kind of resemble God. He didn't do a slightly better job at it than we did, but he came and he did it with perfection. He was the exact imprint of God's nature. And then kind of like a buddy text that explains that is in Hebrews 1. I want to read a couple verses from that. Hebrews 1 talks about God, at, Jesus as God's image bearer. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And here it is, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Remember last week? Jesus sitting on the hillside, a nod to his deity, a nod to his kingship. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. We actually, it's, it's beautiful as we're studying the words from Exodus. Here we see that Jesus was the last word of God. But open up in your Bibles too, if you haven't already, to Exodus 20. Look at where the second command is talked about. And tell me if you can see what God is teaching them about himself. What attribute does God teach about himself? What kind of God is he? Jealous God. Ooh, it's kind of good for, for Valentine's Day. God is a jealous God. So do we have these memories of spiteful, jealous boyfriends of Valentine's Day past? I don't know. Maybe we were the jealous girlfriend. What does it mean that God is jealous? Is it just about envy? Envy? 
Is it about insecurity? No. We know that it can't be like that. We've already seen so far in our study that God is very much unlike us. So how can it be that he's jealous? Well, we know it can't be about insecurity because if we backtrack, insecurity then means that God has a need. And we know that God has no needs and therefore cannot be manipulated by people. Now, what it means when we read that God is a jealous God in the Ten Commandments is that God is zealous for his own glory. What might sound like a bad thing at first, a jealous God is actually so good for us, guys. He's zealous for his own glory. His love is intense. His love is exclusive. So when we enter covenant with him, it is to be an exclusive love. But within this context of we should make no carved images, could it also mean when we say that God is zealous for his own glory, could it actually mean that to this audience, God is saying, hey, I am going to jealously protect the role that it's almost like that vacant spot on top of the mercy seat is for the future revelation of my son. I didn't say that very clearly. I should have just copied the commentary. But could it be that when God is saying that to young Israel and Jesus has not yet been revealed to them in the flesh, he's saying, no, 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 this reserved spot, this throne that may look like it's empty, I'm gonna hold this place open because when I reveal my nature through Jesus, it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be the manifestation of my glory. And so he wants to protect it. He says, you will not make a carved image of me. Okay, we don't break this one though, right? I mean, none of us are gonna carve images or statues. Our mantles aren't full of small little statues that we bow down to, right? Let's return to the idol of comfort. If I, when I am idolizing one of the many faces of comfort, I am loving it more than the God who has freed me from my land of slavery, then I am likely going to create an image or a version of God that is more suitable to my liking. Like I said earlier, I won't allow, I won't worship a God who allows or even ordains suffering. When I'm confronted with sufferings, my worship will change. We said that this commandment it shows us how to worship correctly. Okay, so often when I am inconvenienced, when God has allowed something hard to come my way, I don't worship. My hands go high, my voice goes loud when things are easy, so often. but could we actually bring that before the Lord, ask him to purify our worship and see how it comes back to the second command. Ladies, are we okay looking odd to our neighbors? When they look at our life and see that we are worshiping an invisible God, maybe that's not really where it connects, but when a watching world sees us living by what we cannot yet see, are we okay looking odd to them? 
I think it's an invitation for us to live by faith, not by sight. Because if we say that we serve an unseen God, then it also means that so often the way he's working in our life is often unseen, at least for a time. It means that very often we can't see what he's doing. We can't make sense of what he's allowing in our life. Can we be okay with that? What is it in your life where you need to, instead of look for what you can see, you need to be told and encouraged to look for what you cannot yet see? The last couple years, almost three years, I have had uh, some nagging health issues. And I'm thankful that they have not been uh, severe or scary, um, but I have felt inconvenienced at the very least. And I have felt broken at times. And sometimes in the last three years, many of you would find me striding out on good days toward the Lord, living for what I cannot yet see. Some of you who have walked through some of this with me, you would find me saying, I will serve the Lord my God. I will serve him only. But then there's other times where you have probably found me allowing comfort to step in front of the God who loves me. And you find me tired and my faith paper thin. As I say, how long, O Lord, how long? As you saw me trying every single idea that doctors and Instagram would tell me to try. A couple weeks ago, as he has done, God um, was faithful to give me some reminders. One of those, he's the God who saved me. It's been good to go back to my salvation, to go all the way back in the archives to when I was seven, or to go back to when I was 13, or to go back when I was 26. These pivotal moments of God's faithfulness. He is the God who saved me and who has been faithful to me. Secondly, he is the God who saved me that I might worship him. Not that I may worship comfort. Not that I may worship perfect health as if that is what God has given us to strive for more than anything else. But third, and what felt new to me is that he invited me to remember that just as he is unseen, there is more going on in my life than what I can see. All I can see is my body and the things that feel like they're not working as well as they used to, or things that aren't making sense. Or maybe I go one more step and I say, I can't even see what's going on at the molecular endocrine level in my body. But my hope is there. I just get so stuck on this body, on what I can see. And the Lord graciously tuned my ear to hear him say that there is more going on than you can see, Rebecca. There is this entire world, the cosmos, that I am ordaining, that is in the palm of my hands, and that includes your body. And more importantly than that, your soul. 
And so can I, instead of living by what I see, instead believe that even these hardships, as mild but chronic as they are, could it be that those hardships are protecting me from a sin that I was otherwise going to get tripped up by? Maybe, likely. Could it be that I actually am safer as I hide in the shelter of his wing, that pride is not as close to my ankles as it otherwise would be if I was just striding out, feeling good, living the good life, having a blast. But because I'm limping, because I feel a pause, because I feel a little broken, I'm actually safer. And here's where these points all come together and kind of, I don't know if it's irony or if it's actually just a, a beautiful puzzle that comes together, guys. When we live by faith, we live by what we cannot yet see. We end up growing in Christ-likeness, which makes the invisible God more visible to a hurting world. As we live by faith, we begin to better bear the image of the perfect image bearer. And it's full circle. It's downstream from the second commandment in Exodus that we are to serve God who is unseen. But the way God does it and the way he moves in us, especially when we obey, is that somehow we then end up showing the world Jesus, the perfect image bearer. So guys, will you take a moment and think about it and maybe write it down? Is there an area in your life that you need to remember that there's more going on than what you can see? No matter how wise you are or insightful you are, there is still more going on from an infinite God. Don't be bummed by that. Be excited. We live not by what we see, but, what, why, but by what, what we do not yet see. All right, the next one. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We read this week that someone's name, it was more than just identifying who they were in a room. It was talking about their whole being. It was talking about their character. What is God saying here? He's saying, do not trivialize my name. Do not devalue it. Do not trifle with my name because that is trifling with my character. So we don't break this one, do we? We're all good Christian women. We don't drop the OMGs, right? Because that got us soap in the mouth when we were younger in the Bible Belt. No. But guys, let's tether it to the first commandment. When we put something before God, we will speak differently about God. When we put something before God, we will speak differently to God. If I put comfort before God and I think I can keep it hidden, I'm fooling myself because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I am not loving God the most, you're going to hear it in my voice. 
And this commandment that I've just always seen is just so um, objective and, and easy to understand. And, and maybe just back to that legalistic thought. This week, somebody sent me this reminder of this psalm. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing. Guys, it is so much more than just speaking like a lady. <laughs> For us, there is a chance that it could be saying, oh my gosh, or something like that, is actually just as impure as saying God's name in vain, perhaps. But it could be how we pray. And how are we told to pray? Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. The fourth one, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. All right, almost done. This one, I am deep in a learning curve on this one. I am not a good Sabbather. Guys, did any of you grow up practicing Sabbath? I mean, all the way back, like, did your parents teach you to Sabbath? Oh, wow. Two. <laughs> yeah. Let's, all, let's put you guys on the stage very soon and hear about it. I am learning. What, we had family day on Sunday, which we hated when we were little. Oh, we hated that as teenagers. That just was so boring. I think that that was the, they were trying to create that culture of Sabbath, and they thought maybe it helps to call it that. I don't think so, but um, I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I, instead of trying to summarize what this guy said, I'm going to just read you parts of, of two paragraphs here that were super helpful for me. This is called The Rest of God. Uh, Brian Dermody and Alyssa Borwick both just read this. They both work here, and they just can't stop talking about it. And it lined up in our homework. We saw that in Exodus, we're told to Sabbath because of Genesis right? And then in Deuteronomy, we're told to Sabbath because of Exodus, because of Egypt. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Remember those questions? So listen as he kind of uh, explains this a little bit. This sums up all those questions we had. The Exodus command with its call to imitation plays on a hidden irony. We mimic God in order to remember that we're not So good. We mimic God in order to remember we're not God. In fact, this is a good definition of Sabbath, imitating God so that we stop trying to be him. We mirror divine behavior because God Sabbathed only to freshly discover our human limitations. Sabbath keeping involves a recognition of our weakness and our smallness. So God, knowing both our need and our folly, took the lead. He set the example. Guys, listen. Like a parent who coaxes a cranky toddler to lie down for an afternoon nap by lying down beside her, God woos us into rest by resting. God commands that we imitate him in order to discover again that we're not him and that we need him. Sabbath is a return to Eden. 
because that's what the, the refusal to rest amounts to, living as though taskmasters still hover over us ever ready to thrash us for the smallest sign of slowing down. It is to strive and toil as though we have no choice, as if we'll be punished otherwise. To refuse Sabbath is in effect to spurn the gift of freedom. It is to resume willingly what we once cried out for God to deliver us from. Slaves don't rest. Slaves can't rest. Slaves, by definition, have no freedom to rest. Rest, as it turns out, is a condition of liberty. God calls us to live in freedom that he won for us with his outstretched arm. Sabbath is a refusal to go back to Egypt. How does this word, this commandment, get tethered to the first commandment, guys? Easy. This one's easy. When I skip Sabbath, it is always traced back to an idol. Let's go with comfort. When comfort is my idol, then I am going to blow through guardrails, margins, boundaries to make sure I get there. So maybe we set aside a day or a half day to Sabbath and I sit on the couch and I see the nasty dog hair all over the floor and I see the egg pan in the sink that nobody else could see. I can't rest until this is done. And I justify it. Oh, I need to create a place of order. There is never going to be a place where there's no dog hair in my house, ever. And I justify it. Why? Because I am idolizing comfort. Because when my house is clean, I convince myself that I'm in control. I convince myself that life is under my management. But what if, as a family, we rallied together and did all our chores on Saturday so that at least the house was that much more in order, so that everyone is learning discipline, so that on Sunday we can remember that we are not slaves anymore, and nor are we God. And both of those are good news for us. All right, and the last one, honor your father and mother. This one took me a little bit to see how does reading in context help us. This was hard. How does keeping the first word help me with this one? And then I remembered, we'll talk about it like it's uh, just a, a separate illustration. I remember how teenagers act. I think of you who have full-blown teenagers in your home. How does a teenager who has authority, how do they act when you threaten their comfort? So some of you are wishing your kids would sleep. Some of you are in the season of life where you can't get your kid to stop sleeping, right? Some of you, with that teen in your house, when you wake them up, you awake them from their comfort of sleeping, and you're their authority, how do they respond? Do they honor you in that moment? No, remember back when you were a teenager, did you honor that parent who was waking you up at 10 a.m. on the Sunday morning, on the Saturday morning? No. See guys, what's happening with that teenager is that you're threatening their idol, and so they are going to blame you as their authority. So in our life, we are much the same, when my comfort is threatened, I am going to reject or be mad at the authority in my life. But sometimes when I'm actually mad at God, it just takes a stop at my parents. 
more so when I was growing up, but it can still show up now. Guys, what I'm saying is that it's actually a gift from the Lord that he gives us this rule, which is true for all of them, because by being reminded over and over again that we have authority in our life or had authority in our life, and that was a good thing, it's gonna help us honor God. Or go the other way. When we tether it to verse one, the more that I think about, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. We think about the God who gave us spiritual life. We think about the authority of God who gave us spiritual life. And we treasure that. Then we will more easily honor the person who gave us physical life. We will honor the the parents, whether they are with us now or not, whether it's a good relationship or not, we will find it easier to honor them and they will feed each other, that we would grow in health with our parents and in our love and honor of God. How does this keep us free? It reminds us that we're not alpha. Every time that we speak to people in authority with honor, We are being put in our place. We are being told, you're not the alpha, you're not the boss, or how about this, guys? We don't have to mother everybody. This command is about honoring the mother figures. The mother figures in our church, too. How about that? Taking that seriously to honor the women older than us in our church. What does that look like? If you don't have any relationships with any women older than you, Maybe pursuing those is a way for you to live out this commandment. (coughs) All right, guys. As we close, not just because I'm coughing, let's remember that these freedoms do not strip us. These rules do not strip us of our freedom. They deliver them to us. These words do not strip us of our freedom. They provide freedom. So let's follow them. So look at these five and pick one for this, for the rest of today that you can commit to prayer and meditation. Which one's a little dusty? Which one's been neglected? Which one's a little weak? I'm like, let's set that to application. Let me pray. (coughs) Father, you are good and you love us. And what a sweet invitation it is to remember you as we look at your words. And to allow ourselves to be carried as, as we put in effort to obey these. Well, we know that while we're putting in the effort, we're being carried on wings like an eagle, far from our place of slavery and into green pastures and into a place where we see still waters and into a place where we see your boundary lines and we say that they have fallen for us in pleasant places. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, guys, so go back to your tables for 10 minutes. And um, I mean, the ladies have the application questions picked out, but if you've got one and you're like, I want to talk about this application question, please do it. 
And then if you have kiddos, please go get them in 10 minutes. <laughs>